the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Really interesting article at New York Times. It was entitled this. It's in the opinion section. It says the empty religions of Instagram. Let me read some of this, Steve, and then I'd love to just get kind of your feel on what they're getting at here. It says on Instagram, the author says, I follow 700 people, mostly women. 100 of those women follow Glennon Doyle, whose memoir Untamed has been a bestseller for 51 weeks. Uh, Remember, this is the New York Times talking here. It says fans of Miss Doyle's gospel, an accessible combination of self-care, activism and tongue in cheek Christianity can worship at any time, day or night, at the electric church of her Instagram feed. By replacing the rigid dogma of religion with the confessional lingua franca, I have no idea what that means, of social media, Miss Doyle has become a charismatic preacher for women like me who aren't even religious. 22% of millennials are not affiliated with a specific religion. We are known as religious nuns. The Pew Research Center found that the number of nuns in the population as a whole increased nine percentage points from 09 to 2019. The main reasons that nuns are unaffiliated are that they question religious teachings or that they don't like the church's stance on social issues. But are we truly non-religious or are our belief systems too bespoke to appear on a list of major religions in the Pew phone survey. So there's going to be a lot more here. What, what do you just think of that beginning, this idea that we, you and our pastors, we hear all about the nuns and O-N-E-S's and, and that they're leaving, the millennials are leaving, and that they're, they're gravitating to things like Instagram preachers, like influencers, not churches and pastors. Do you think this is, uh, this is getting on to something here at the New York Times? I'm not exactly sure, Brian, but what I do think that as a Christian pastor, and I think what what Romans 1 kind of articulates to us is that we were created for worship. And Mm -hmm. so we we will worship something. It's good. Uh, We will build our lives on some kind of uh, ideology or we will build, even if it's not, even if we're irreligious, Mm -hmm. we can make up our own rules for how we can be our own self-salvation strategy. Mm. And so I think that as much as people would call themselves irreligious, there's some form of religion that they ascribe to. It just might not be uh, the institutional Christian church. Yeah. It says here, Miss Doyle and other quasi-spiritual influencers are the latest iteration of an American institution that has been around since the second half of the 20th century, that being the televangelist. Uh, so, again, you and I are pastors, and, and I want to give you the opportunity to speak of this. Uh, if it's true that millennials particularly are, are going away from the institutional church, uh, they're going away from the church, 
Uh, I would love for you to speak on both ends uh, to the millennial who's going, I don't need church. Like, what would your answer to them be? And then what do we learn from like, what does the church have to learn? Like, what what is it that we're doing that might be pushing millennials away? So kind of a both end of it. You could pick which one to choose first, uh, because this is a, certainly a really important conversation. Yeah, I, I think that uh, on the, the the side of things that that's like, man, what are we doing as uh, a church? Mm-hmm. Um Man, I, I think that there's certain portions of the Christian population that looks at, and I'm going to get to the second part of your mm-hmm, question. Mm-hmm. Um, they look at kind of the the politicized nature of, uh, or the enmeshed nature of maybe Christianity and the Republican Party, mm-hmm. and they say, you know what, I I don't really want anything to to do with that. And then I, I and I think that some of the ways that the the church has kind of come out. In terms of socially and in the history of where the church has been socially or how they've been behind on certain things, Um, you know, I always say in in it's just a reference to a podcast that I listen to with a couple of guys that the the progressive side of things is wanting the. Uh, the accoutrements of the kingdom mm-hmm. without submitting itself to the kingship or the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's really good. And so there, there's value systems and values that that are inherently like they're Christian ethics. <laughs> yes, they're Christian practices to to value equality and the uplifting of women in society and uh, all of these different things and adoption and. Uh, foster care and all of those, those are Christian things like pre Christ. Those yeah. things are yeah. not like value systems in society. And, uh, on the, on the other side of, of this, I think that, you know, you look at the Mike Todd's of the world and the in, Instagram preachers of the world. And I love what some of them are doing. I don't know some, some of these folks who are right. producing some of this other stuff. Um, but I think that this pandemic has shown us something, uh, inherently about community. Yeah. And the importance of community and connection. And I think the reality is, is regardless of what people, uh, ascribe to for a season of time, eventually it's going to be a thing where like, I need community. I need mm-hmm. connection with mm-hmm. other people. I need uh, to have touch points with other people in life. And maybe part of part of the millennial push against it is to not have that form of accountability. Yeah. Um, but I, I still think that inherently in the human soul is this sort of knowing that I am created in the image of God and I need connection to mm-hmm. other people. And I think that on the other side of this pandemic, man, the the church gathering is going to be this like, whoa, no doubt. This is what this is what we humanly long for. Yeah. So th- that's my tidbit. That's good. That's good. I think you're right about the church gathering, because I, there was a point in this pandemic where people are like, are people just going to get so comfortable? They're just going to stay home. And this and I'm like. I I do not hear that from people. I hear people going, please, can yeah. we get back? Please, can I hug my neighbor? Please, can I? And I think we need to be ready for that in, in a good way. I think that's going to be really good. And this article goes on. I think one of the interesting things about this Instagram um, kind of discussion, it says the whole economy of Instagram is based on our thinking about ourselves, posting about ourselves, working on ourselves. And I mm. think it's this self-centeredness. Mm. That that runs against what the church does and against the gospel. But I think the church needs to be ready to speak to that because there's this seems to be the draw. We're putting this up on our Facebook page. We would love to hear what you have to say about it. Uh, It is our Facebook, Twitter and ironically, Instagram pages at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next, 
We can't wait to talk over the next two segments to the professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, author of many books, uh, regularly on Twitter as well. Her name is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen is going to join us for the next two segments here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, hope for your life. Everybody, welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Steve Koble, my guest host today, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on such a beautiful day here in the Chicagoland area. And we couldn't be more thrilled than to have the guest that we have on the phone for the next two segments. Uh, she does a ton of stuff, a professor and author. Also uh, has started writing a, a regular column at the Religion News Service at RNS uh, that is just you need to go read it. We're going to want to talk to her about some of those articles. That person that we are talking about is Karen Swallow Pryor. Karen, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to be with you. It's absolutely our pleasure. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit? Sure. Well, as you said, I have a new column at Religion News Service, um, and in writing that, I'm really drawing on uh, my decades um, as uh, an English professor at uh, a Christian institution now at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a writer of books, um, kind of a, a thinker and, um, and participant in uh, the wider evangelical culture as well as um, the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, so, it's, yeah, I guess I'm drawing on a lot of things as I write about these things and, and, and talk to folks like you. Yeah, we're grateful to have you on. Uh, the first article that you wrote, the first column that you wrote, I believe, for the Religion News Service of your new columns was called Still Baptist, Still Evangelical. That was back in, uh, I believe, in February. And, and I, I found that to be just a fascinating article. We actually talked about it here on the show uh, in, in a really kind of... Um, personal way for you to kind of introduce yourself to the audience, right, with your new column. I'd love to know, uh, why did you choose that topic or to start with? And let our people know kind of what was the point of that article? Yeah, well, you know, Religion News Service is just what it sounds like. It's mm-hmm. a, a news service for all religion, which isn't just Christianity, as all the world religions. Um, and even the Christian coverage isn't necessarily my own um, camp of, of conservative evangelicals or Baptists. And so um, when RNS contacted me uh, and asked me to come on board, a part of the reason was they wanted to have more voices um, from from conservative evangelicals. And so I I just thought that an introductory kind of, uh, of column would um, serve that purpose well to introduce myself and also just kind of show that um, that that conservative evangelicals are part of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And because, um, you know, because it just seems like a lot of attention has been focused on the divisions and polarizations and the changes and the departures, with especially within Southern Baptist um, circles and then even just wider evangelicalism since the election um, the in 2016 and 2020, evangelicals mm-hmm. been a lot of headlines, and a lot of people are, are departing or deconstructing. And I guess I was just saying, you know, I'm, I'm part of these conversations, and I'm pushing against a lot of this, but I'm I'm still here. Yeah. And uh, I kind of wanted to explain, you know, where I was coming from. That I I come from a, a 
uh, a history of, of a long time in the in Baptist churches and considering myself an evangelical, um, I think my eyes are wide open to the the problems we're facing, yeah. but I'm still committed, and um, and I hope to encourage others who might be as well. Karen, it, just in talking about the, your your that particular portion of your first article, and then when you look at your second article that you wrote for them on March 3rd, and this idea of, of shame, I have been reading uh, Kurt Thompson's The Soul of Shame and the story that stories that we tell about ourselves, and a kind of broad perspective i've also spent some time as um i I shouldn't say a nerd at seminary because (laughs) because you're a seminary professor Uh, but once upon a time i took a a a class called classic texts in the history of christianity and so we would read all types of different things we would read uh, marcus aurelius uh meditations we would read plato symposium um all all types of stuff and so one of the things that i remember from some of augustine's stuff was uh this idea of plundering the egyptians and mm-hmm. in talking about this um, kind of this idea of shame and the pervasiveness that you put in your article, I'm just curious with with people leaving the evangelical church or saying I'm done with evangelicalism. Uh, a lot of that, I, I feel like from African-American folks has been in response to the SBC's promotion of or, or sort of their uh, condemning of critical race theory and. So this is sort of a long way to, to ask, and I'll wrap up my question. I, as I think about those books like uh, like Plato's Symposium, and I remember uh, my professor saying that, that Augustine uh, kind of commandeered Neoplatonism to talk about God being the highest being. It made sense to me that as Christians, we could take something like critical race theory and apply it as like a plundering of the Egyptians for the sake of understanding race and racism. And so I, I, I'm curious if when when you think about the idea of critical race theory and the Southern Baptist Convention's condemnation of critical race theory, that uh, like, are we allowed to plunder the Egyptians when it comes to critical race theory? Or is that, <laughs> is that like a faux idea that I've created in my mind. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, that's that's that is the question, isn't it? And mm. um, you know, I, I appreciate that you talked about your um, nerdiness of the seminary, <laughs> and because in some ways, you know, in some ways there is a division here. Um, there's a way that um, that we in academia are trained to treat questions and to treat theories. And it's hard to not take that training with us wherever we go. I mean, um, we we study so many different worldviews and ideologies, and um, they wouldn't uh, gain any traction or be worthy of any attention if they didn't have some truth in them. And um, and so I think we're we're trained to do that to look and see what can we take from this. What you know what's the, what's the meat that we can chew and what are the bones we need to spit out and. Um, Augustine, certainly his idea that all truth is God's truth, and we can plunder uh, the Egyptians and use that gold that we get from them for the service of the Lord is 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 a key idea. It's been one in, uh, in the Church for a long time. So um, I certainly agree that is the general approach that Christians for um, centuries have taken toward worldly philosophies, and this... Um, you know, critical race theory has just been something that just in this time, in this place of social media and so much other political division, it just kind of is a, a convergence of different issues that um, 
that has touched on a lot of sore spots. And yeah. so I think the question we face is what, what's really underneath the concerns? And maybe that's what this is a time that God can just kind of help us. You know, he's stripping back some of the layers, and we have to do that work to get underneath what's the surface and, and figure that out. And, um, it's, boy, it's a hard time in the yeah. church right now, and God has called us to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And so we're thrilled to be joined by Karen Swallow Pryor. She is uh, more than gracious enough to stay with us for a second segment. Karen, before we close out this segment, you had, a, like, as we were talking off air, you had a book come out just yesterday. I'd love for you to tell people about it and point them to where they can get it, and then we'll uh, we'll jump into a second segment. Tell us about your new book. Well, sure. It's actually two books as part of a six. Uh, volume series on the classics. I've, I've um, edited and reproduced um, uh, a number of classics, and the ones that just came out are Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I've written introductions to new readers and discussion questions and, and footnotes to help readers engage with these classic texts, whether for the first time or the 12th time. That's awesome. Again, that's Karen Swallow Pryor. Research Professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, author of many books. And as we've been talking about, she also now has a monthly column at RNS at Religion News Service. And we couldn't uh, encourage you enough to go find those articles. We'll put them up on our Facebook page. Uh, as well. And Karen, uh, again, y- you wrote one called Still Baptist, Still Evangelical, another one called Shame, Grace, and Hashtag Stop the Steal. Uh, and, and a lot of, of your writings has to do with, with the Southern Baptist Convention in this and why you're still Baptist. And, and I wanted to just add, when I saw the story last night, I don't know how many tweets I saw about Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist Convention and how big that was. Uh, and and I, I wonder if you could help people understand why that was such a big deal. And I'm not going to ask you to speak for Beth Moore, but really just speak to why that is a huge deal and, and uh, within the Southern Baptist Convention and evangelicalism as a whole. Sure. Well, I mean, I don't know if anyone can really think about the Southern Baptist Convention with with any knowledge without thinking about Beth Moore. Right. She played such a, wow. a tremendous role in um, bringing Bible study and the love of the Bible to so many women um, at a time that you know where women um, were beginning to flourish in women's uh, Bible studies, and uh, more and more were being drawn in, and so she's just been been there all this time and um, has shaped, uh, mm-hmm. shaped, because she shaped so many women, um, she shaped the convention, and so this really is a, a very significant event um, in the life of the convention, mm-hmm. and I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's, I think the historians will look back and, and see a lot that, that follows it. I don't know what that will be, but I think it definitely will be some sort of a, a turning point. Yeah. Karen, I'm, I'm curious, going back to your article on grace and shame, uh, I was just thinking about the huge response, especially from even uh, former uh, Southern Baptist Convention pastors who are African-American and the response to the Southern Baptist Convention presidents condemning critical race theory. And as a person outside looking in, it just seems like there's there's this underlying uh, desire to avoid the shame of embracing the fact or the realities of uh, race and racism and how they have permeated uh, the Southern Baptist Convention in general. And I'm curious if, if you can't just elaborate on that. 
Am I right about that? Yeah, Am I crazy? I mean, you, no, you, you're, you're right. I mean, this is this is part of what I was touching on in that in that article is, um, you know, there, there is real guilt that, because we've done wrong things and feel shame because of it, which is good. But then there's the kind of shame that comes when either, you know, we haven't done something wrong or we don't know if we've done something wrong, mm-hmm. but others are, are making us feel like we have been wrong and so we feel shame not for what we've done but for who we are or who we think we or how we think we look to other Mm. people and that's a really that's a very hard thing to deal with i think we all deal with it in a in a lot of ways the sense of shame that often is just it's it's how we think others see us um and that can be so hard to dispel and i honestly do think that a, a lot of that is what's lurking um, beneath hmm. the surface of these conversations. Um, you know, we, we, there, there's a wound, and we're all carrying it, hmm. but we don't know what the source of the wound is, and we don't know if we did it to ourselves or someone else did it to us, and it's very natural to just kind of recoil. That's what shame makes us do. It makes us retreat and recoil, um, or, it, you know, it can make us lash out and, hmm. um, you know, and get defensive. Um, and... I, I just I think that we are not just as a Southern Baptist convention, but even as a country, uh, we don't know what to do with the shame that we feel from the past that you know we haven't really faced, and whether we you know what the level of guilt is or how to deal with that um, is a is an important question. But that even that alone doesn't help us to. Um, grapple with, with yeah. the shame that we feel, whether it's legitimate shame or not. We still have to deal with it because as human beings, we're going to react to any shame that we feel. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. And, and Karen, we talked about how you are a professor uh, at a seminary. You've also you used to teach at Liberty. Other places you've been in academics with college-age students and just at, I'm curious for your opinion of this. Do you as you are with students uh, at seminary, uh, do, do you feel like they are hopeful uh, for the future of the church? And, and the flip of that is, are you hopeful for the next generation of Christians that you're teaching? Where are you at as you teach these students? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to answer that question. And but first, you know, I'm going to make a connection to shame because okay. your question makes me realize that, you know, I think that a lot of Christians, because of all the media attention and because of the polarization, the magnification that the media puts on our divisions and our our doubts and our guilt and our shame, I think that there's a level of embarrassment sometimes Mm. that comes, or shame, that causes people to to want to leave the Church. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing. Um, It's not the only reason. and so that's one response, I think, that we have to these questions is just um, the magnification of shame, and that, that can make people just want to run away. But on the other hand, um, I do see young people um, responding with, with really with learning some of the lessons we've been teaching them all along about having a more holistic um, biblical worldview, about caring mm-hmm. about all of the Bible, not just the parts of it. <laughs> and so... I see them um, pushing back against the the errors that my generation has made um, in emphasizing some things and neglecting others, and um, I think think that uh, 
yeah, they'll make mistakes of their own. But right now, I see the, this next generation in the church. Um, if they if they aren't overcome by the shame and embarrassment and running away, which is happening, mm-hmm. but uh, those who are staying are, are demanding better, um, and they they give me some hope because I think that they they offer us um, a mirror where we can see perhaps where where we need to make some corrections and um, fill in some gaps. Absolutely. Karen, I'm super curious about your book that came out in 2018 and reading well and reading some of these classic texts. And I'm curious what you would say about in reading some of the the sort of historical uh, books that have come out over the course of time. Like how do reading those things help us spiritually? Because sometimes I had a really difficult time (laughs) reading those things. So I'm I'm like excited to go get your book and, (laughs) and, and read it. Well, you know, there's a discipline involved. I mean, at the most basic level, there's sort of a discipline involved in in reading texts are a little bit harder because of the vocabulary or just because they're in a different time or place or by people that aren't familiar to us. Um, And that's that's good for the soul, that kind of challenge. But then there's also just um, learning to see the world through um, the eyes of someone else, and that, that mm-hmm. includes the author and the way the author uses language and, and presents the perspective of someone, and we see the world through their eyes while we're still kind of seeing it through our own eyes. That gives us the ability to consider different perspectives and to maybe have empathy with someone, even if we don't agree with them or mm-hmm. agree with their actions. Um, it's actually, that, that's just kind of spiritual discipline that carries over into our own life in, in the real world. That's good. And Karen, so good. Uh, thrilled to have you with us. There's some guests I was joking with Steve off air who two segments can be a lot and you can try to, I feel like we could talk to you forever. So <laughs> really grateful for you. Bef- before we let you go, to let everybody know where's all the places they can find you, things you've written, things you put on social media, where can people find you? Well, all of my books are on my website, karenswallowbriar.com. Um, you can find my latest tweets. I tweet way too much on, on Twitter <laughs> at KS Pryor. Um, and if you're more of a visual person, I do have an Instagram account where you can see my books and my dogs and my uh, sometimes my daily runs, um, and that's Karen Swallow Pryor. Um, and so, yeah, I guess there's a little something there for everyone, perhaps. Absolutely. Karen Swallow Pryor, again, is a research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological. Seminary. Karen, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Karen. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on just a beautiful afternoon here in the Chicagoland area. Couldn't ask for much nicer weather today. Glad that you're spending a little bit of time with us. So if you're in the Christian world, you know the name Tim Tebow. So Tim Tebow, former quarterback, Heisman Trophy winner, national champion, uh, former quarterback for a couple different teams, most well-known for uh, the Denver Broncos. But Tim Tebow is also just a, uh, besides being uh, from the outside, uh, just a good human being. Uh, Tim Tebow is a very vocal, um, a very vocal follower of Jesus. And that's one thing that has kind of uh, rubbed people the wrong way, but also endeared him to others. And so I want to play something that I was watch. I was on Twitter and I saw uh, that Tim Tebow posted something that he said. It's about a minute 20 uh, long and and here's what I want you to do. I want you to listen to it 
And then I want to come and talk about why what he said is so important. Let's give it a listen. And you know, I want to make that choice daily to believe that we serve a really big God because our God wasn't done performing miracles 2,000 years ago. He wasn't done using people 2,000 years ago. He uses them today. He, use, he will use you today. And sometimes we think, but God, what do we have to offer? What do I have to offer? You are that offering. Everything that you have, whatever you have, your time, your talent, your treasure, your resources, all of it, that's what you have to offer. A lot of my favorite stories in the Bible are of, of people that you would think, man, that person's not going to be the hero, but in the Bible, because our God is so countercultural, he uses those people, the people, oh, there's no way he would use this person. There's no way he would use Paul to, lead, to write two-thirds of the New Testament. He was killing Christians. But our God is a God of grace, a God of second chances, a God of redemption, a God of restoration, and a God of using people that have messed up and have fallen short because we get to team up with the one person that hasn't fallen short and never messed up and never made a mistake. You see, in that relationship, we don't have to be the MVP because we have the most valuable player and his name is Jesus and he came through for us but for some reason we get to be called co-laborers with him on the same team all right so again that is Tim Tebow and and I found that so encouraging for a couple different reasons uh, the first is uh, I think he really highlights a, an important fact that that the god who was at work 2000 years ago 5000 years ago uh, is the same God at work today, that we believe in a big God, uh, that he is, uh, the, the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that, uh, and so we could go back into the Old Testament. We could go back into the New Testament and A, uh, be encouraged that God is still at work, that that hasn't changed, that he didn't just check out somewhere along the way here and be like, yeah, I'm done. I'm kind of tired or don't really have to do anything anymore. And so I think that's an important point that Tebow brings up here. And secondly, that just at, like when we read the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament, God has always been in the business of taking really ordinary people and doing extraordinary things. That uh, Think about Moses. Think about Joshua. Uh, think about King David. Think about Peter. Think about Paul. Uh, he is uh, an ordinary people extraordinary things. And I think that's what Tim Tebow is getting at here because many of us, we look in the mirror and we go, what could God ever do with my talents? How could I ever be used to not just not change the world, but, but affect a life or to make a difference in my kid's life or my neighbor's life? And, and, and I found this to be really inspirational. When, Tebow, when Tim Tebow said, uh, my act of worship, my offering is myself. And uh, that I have time and talents and treasures and resources, and that that is what I have to offer to our God. And that God is still in the business of taking our time, our talents, our treasures. And in, in a way that blows our minds, he takes men and women that we could never believe that God is going to use that person in a powerful way. Like, like Tim Tebow pointed out there that uh, that he used the Apostle Paul. Have you ever thought about this for a second? Like, let me just, let's take it back a little bit. The Apostle Paul, when he was Saul, he wasn't just a, um, he just wasn't against Christians. He was killing them. He was overseeing the persecution of them. What does it say about God? 
that he goes, you know what? I'm going to use that guy. I'm going to use him in order to start a movement that's going to change the world. Like, doesn't that kind of feel like God's showing off a little bit? <laughs> like he's going, look at what I can do. He could have used anybody in that moment. He wasn't like, oh gosh, I guess I got to use salt. No, he's like, you know what? I'm going to make a point here. And, and I feel like that so often we can look in the mirror and go, I'm not impressive enough. I'm not, um, God could never use me. He uses the person who's funny or well-spoken or gets on a stage or can sing or is mag magnetic personality or whatever else it might be. And we kind of shrink back and go, I'm just going to, you know, go day by day. I'm going to get through the world. I'm going to go to church on Sunday, but I'm going to have pretty low expectations of what God can do in and through me. He used a bunch of fishermen. He used a tax collector. He used the guy who was killing Christians to start a gospel movement and change the world. He used King David, a shepherd boy. He used Moses, who Moses said to God, please don't send me. I'm, I, I stutter. I don't speak well. I need someone to come speak for me. Time after time after time. It's not just that God uses and works through the least likely people. It's also, it seems to be that he also rarely chooses to work through the most uh, credentialed still does uh but it's 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 this thread that we see throughout scripture that says no it's not about us it's about him and and that god is still in the business of doing more than we could ever ask or imagine and that he calls us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to be willing to go and make disciples to be his ambassadors. And just how in the book of Acts, it was his Holy Spirit at work. So now it's still about the power of his Holy Spirit at work. It's not about what I can do. I'm not the one charged with changing lives. I am the one charged with making myself open and, and, and giving myself as an offering to him. And God still does amazing things. He does extraordinary things through ordinary people. So I'm thankful for what Tim Tebow had to say there. I think it's just inspirational. It's just helpful. Uh, And I'd uh, love to know what you think. Give it a watch, give it a listen. uh, And then we will uh, go go to our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show uh, at Common Good Talk. You can find it there. We would love to know what you think. Well, coming up next, a fascinating article from Tim Keller, founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church at the Atlantic, says, Growing My Faith in the face of death. That's Tim Keller coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, a fascinating discovery with the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then we're going to be joined for three segments by American political commentator and senior editor of The Dispatch, David French. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. I'm really glad to have you joining us today. Here's what's coming. David French. Uh, somebody that we quote on this show all the time. He's very well-known American political commentator, uh, used to be in the United States Army. Uh, he is the senior editor of The Dispatch. David French writes at the French Press. And if you've been around this show for any amount of time, especially when Ian and I were together, 
we would almost read David French on a weekly basis. Uh, I have a huge amount of respect for David French. And he will, you might totally disagree with the things he's going to say, but he's going to make you think. He talks so eloquently about the intersection of politics uh, and, and our faith. And I can't wait to spend uh, three solid segments with David French. Before we do that, saw something really fascinating at NBC News. Uh, it, the title reads this. Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls discoveries are first ancient Bible text to be found in 60 years. A 6,000 year old skeleton of a partially mummified child and a 10,500 year old basket were also discovered. Think about those, uh, what I just read there, uh, and, and the, uh, the age of those things. It says the Israel Antiquities Authority announced Tuesday that a four-year archaeological project uncovered portions of the book of the 12 minor prophets, including the book of Zechariah and Nahum. Uh, it was the first such discovery in 60 years. And as I said, also discovered were a 6,000-year-old skeleton and a 10,500-year-old basket, which Israeli authorities said could be the oldest in the world. A CT scan revealed the child's age was between 6 and 12, with skin, tendons, and even hair partially preserved. Among the recovered text, which are all in Greek, is Nahum uh, 1, 5 through 6, which says the mountains quake because of him and the, he- the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his wrath? Who can resist his fury? His anger pours out like fire. The rocks are shattered because of him. Uh, Nahum 1, 5 through 6. It said the authority said these words differ slightly from other Bible versions, shedding a rare light on how biblical texts change over the time. From its earliest forms, as you may know, the first set of Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, these were the first sets to be discovered. Uh, The first sets uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found by a Bedouin shepherd in the same area in 1947 and are considered by many to be the most important archaeological finds in the 20th century. Uh, it's, It's fascinating. I had a chance when I was at Wheaton College to spend a summer on a program called Wheaton in the Holy Lands. And uh, we spent like four days, uh, no, no, I'm sorry, a week and a half in Greece following Paul's second missionary journey. And then we were all over Israel for a little bit over a month. And then we ended the trip spending four or five days in uh, Rome. But I will never forget uh, part of our time uh, in Israel. We went to the spot where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the story is amazing. In 1947, this Bedouin shepherd was walking his sheep and he just threw a rock into a cave that went deep. And he heard, if I remember the story correctly, he heard it rattle around like it just sounded weird. And he was going, what was that? And he went in and lo and behold, it was the canisters holding the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, most of the Dead Sea Scrolls are in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, but both Jordan and Palestinian Authority have disputed their ownership. Uh, and so uh, this is just a pretty amazing thing that they found these days. And also while we were on that Wheaton in the Holy Lands uh, trip, uh, we got to visit archaeological sites. And it is a painstaking deal that these archaeologists do. A lot of us, when we think archaeology, we think Indiana Jones, but it's certainly not that. But instead, uh, it is just painstaking with a brush, a, a small you know, shovel or whatever else, because they have to make sure that nothing 
gets disturbed. But what they uncover is just history, often biblical history coming to life. Like, okay, we read about this. This is what this is. This is uh, what this is. It says these remarkable discoveries were made during an Israeli project to prevent looting in the Holy Land, which experts say has been a constant threat to undiscovered artifacts since the first Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, So this is just, I wanted to start with this because a lot of times we can read our Bibles and just become very disconnected. Like it's not real world stuff. Like it didn't really happen. And what these archaeologists do for us is they show us uh, the continuity of scripture, uh, the uh, historicity of things that we read in the New Testament and the Old. It, it, it just kind of, the Bible comes to life. You know, if you've never had the opportunity to visit Israel, I would really encourage you to do so. I, like I said, I was able to spend a summer there, which I know is something that most people will never be able to do, but I was able to spend a summer there and even get college credit for it. That wasn't a bad deal, but uh, I was able to spend a summer there. And what happens is as you walk around Israel, as you go uh, into the desert regions and the Negev, and as you go to the area of the Sea of Galilee, as you park yourself in Jerusalem or go out to Bethlehem and you start to see these things that you read about in the Bible, these areas where Jesus walked, it is it is life changing. Uh, and so albeit for me to sound like a, a representative of the Israeli tourist agency, but I would encourage you, uh, if you are a follower of Jesus, to at some point in your life, try to make that trip because it really is uh, wild. You know, you stand alongside the banks of the Jordan River and and it's life-changing, as I said. And so uh, I found this to be a fun way to start the show. Dead Sea Scrolls Discoveries, our first ancient Bible text to be found in 60 years. Uh, continuing to find things uh, from many, many, many generations ago. We're off and running here on The Common Good. Glad to have you with us for the rest of the hour. I can't encourage you enough to stay with us. We're going to be joined by David French, who serves as senior editor of The Dispatch. David French is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. This episode is a rebroadcast of The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you join us today. Uh, And we are thrilled to be joined uh, for multiple segments here by somebody that if you listen to The Common Good at all, you know we reference his blog posts and his articles uh, almost on a weekly basis. He's an American political commentator, former attorney, all sorts of different things, serves as senior editor of The Dispatch. That is David French. David, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's absolutely our pleasure. Hey, before we jump into uh, what we want to talk about today, could you just introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like? Yeah, sure. Um, David French. I'm a a senior editor at The Dispatch, which is a new uh, conservative uh, media company started in 2019. I'm also a columnist for Time Magazine, recovering lawyer, and uh, (laughs) let's see, what else? Um, Uh a superhero aficionado who is absolutely ecstatic about the Snyder cut being released of justice league being released on uh, Thursday on HBO max. There you go. I just watched uh, <laughs> what ever since the pandemic, we started watching the Marvel movies. I'd never seen any of them. And now we've got like eight in a row. Cause my daughter's like, let's just keep watching them. So <laughs> oh, that's uh, fantastic. Totally be great. Well, again, uh, David blogs at the French press at French press dot the dispatch.com. Uh, and you came out with one the other day, 
called Cruelty as Apostasy, Reflections on Beth Moore's Departure from the Southern Baptist Convention. We've talked a lot on this show about kind of how big a deal Beth Moore's yeah. departure is from the Southern Baptist Convention. Could you speak to that? And also what you talk about is like the what really concerns you about that whole episode of her leaving? Yeah. So for people who don't know Beth Moore and an awful lot of Christian listeners will know Beth Moore, but there are some obviously who who won't. She's one of the most prominent Bible teachers in America, one of the most prominent Southern Baptists in America. I mean, Millions of people have participated in her Bible studies. Right. She has packed stadiums. Um, I mean, she has, you know, when she dove into Twitter, she immediately accumulated, you know, almost a million followers. That's right. She's one of the more prominent uh, public ba- Southern Baptist public figures in the United States and and much beloved. Now, there's always been controversy a little bit or to some degree, some controversy about her role in the SBC. Mm-hmm. Um, she's always adopted the point of view that uh, women should not be senior pastors at Southern Baptist churches. But she has on very uh, rare occasions preached on Sunday morning, which has caused some controversy. And there are people who have critiqued her prominent teaching role. But she's always been in the Southern Baptist tent, you know, that that's right. She's always she there's never been any real question as to whether or not she belongs in the Southern Baptist Convention. But she left. She left. And she left in part because or in large part because in 2016, she came out in opposition to Donald Trump, uh, as a number of other Christian public figures did. Mm -hmm. And then also sort of really became a leading figure in exposing and uh, sexual abuse in the church and supporting victims of sexual abuse in the church and also of opposing Christian nationalism in the church and white supremacy. And um, so she was called all kinds of things, woke cultural Marxist, et cetera, et cetera. But even beyond that sort of like petty name calling, she was subjected to just a hurricane of abuse. Um, If you doubt that I, I, you know, not that you would want to spend all your time doing this, but you can go onto YouTube and you can just start going down the rabbit hole of Beth Moore criticisms and the mockery and the condescension was just, is just off the scale. And so one of the reasons why I wrote what I wrote is I, I've just always been stumped by the idea that a person can feel quite self-confident in their biblical orthodoxy when speaking in sneering, condescending, wrathful terms about the role of women, for example, in the church or Beth Moore's politics, yet exhibit exhibit none of the fruits of the Spirit. Because aren't the fruits of the Spirit biblical (laughs) orthodoxy also? Or the characteristics of love in 1 Corinthians 13, aren't they fruits of, aren't they biblical orthodoxy as well? And so if you're a guardian of biblical doctrine, but you don't exhibit these biblical virtues, um, you know, I, I think there's a deep, deep inconsistency there. That's really well put. Uh, this idea of cruelty, would you say, uh, culturally, it feels like we're crueler as a yeah. people and, and Christian culturally, as you've pointed out, it also feels like we're more cruel. And, and I really appreciate you pointing that out. Why do you think that is? Well, am I right that we're more cruel, but why do you think that is something that's growing and becoming more of a hallmark of who we are, even as Christians? Yeah, that that's a really good question. I don't know that there's any way to do sort of an empirical measure of increases in cruelty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but 
But I do know that we have been able to do empirical measures of increases in animos and increase in animosity. Mm. And so one of the things that we have been able to measure is that in the last 30, 40 years, there has been a dramatic increase in animosity between right and left in this country. And I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that as animosity increases, cruelty increases. And then you combine that with sort of a social media environment that says that you are your worst tweet or you are your worst moment. That is who you are. So that, and this happens constantly. I might write in defense of somebody and say, you know, I, uh, you know, I either agree with their ideas or I think they've been wrongly, wrongly maligned. And time and time again, I'll get a, something sent to me in my timeline that's like, oh, you mean this person? <laughs> with some tweet tweet from three years ago that's, you know, bad or rude yeah, or yeah. impolitic or whatever. And that's how we're defining people. I, I was actually just speaking to somebody, um, a seminary student, and I was just speaking to him. And I said, let me translate this into terms that we could understand in, you know, in a sort of a biblical context. Imagine, you know, Peter denied Christ three times, but then later becomes, you know, an apostle of Jesus Christ in and, and foundational to the building of the early church. If Peter was running around in 2021, every time he opened his mouth, somebody would tweet out his denials hmm. of Christ and say, this you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he would never be able to escape that. He would never, because there would be constantly people broadcasting his worst moment to the world again and again and again and again and using it to discredit him despite his repentance. Yeah. And that's kind of the world we're in right now. Yeah, it is. Uh, so one of the phrases we hear almost ad nauseum in uh, in the news and then social media is cancel culture. How is the what you're describing cancel culture versus what you know, where are there times where someone should be, quote unquote, canceled versus how has our culture just gone too far down that road yeah. right now? Yeah, that's a really good question because cancel culture, like a lot of terms, has become wep the term cancel culture yeah. has become weaponized. <laughs> like the term woke has become, I mean, right. as soon as a, a term sort of gains some currency, it's weaponized. But so, yeah, I think that there is there are circumstances in which people do things that are dreadful enough to which there should be consequence. But there are also times in which people are wrongly punished for good faith disagreement. Mm -hmm. And I and I wrote about this um, in the Washington Post years ago when uh, wrote I, I don't know if you remember that there's been so many of these controversies. Roseanne Barr lost her her own TV show. I remember. Yep. After she said something vile and racist about Valerie Jarrett, the Obama senior Obama administration advisor. And at the same time, there were other cancel culture controversies going on. For example, Colin Kaepernick, who was being um, vilified for taking a knee. James Damore, the Google software engineer who was fired after writing a sort of libertarian minded um, exploration of why there are gender disparities in software engineering. And I, I put it like this. I said, as much as possible, then there's going to be there's going to be gray areas here, but as much as possible, can we make a difference, a distinction between good faith and bad faith? Hmm. If if somebody is in good faith attempting to engage in the culture, even if it's in a way that we profoundly disagree with, we should err on the side of giving people who are in, uh, who we believe in, in are engaging in good faith an opportunity to engage. Yeah. But if someone is just bad faith, if someone is um, like in the Roseanne Barr situation, 
or some of the efforts that you saw, say, for example, designed to overturn the election in 2020. Um, there are people who, who engage in bad faith in the public square, and there should be consequences for that. That's right. There should be consequences for that. Now, not from the government. The First Amendment applies to speech in good faith. It applies to speech in bad faith. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about how do we use our own speech, how do we use our own uh, power if we are in a, have a position in a private company, I think of uh, I think that we need to really start trying to figure out, hey, look, if somebody's disagreeing with me, even on something that's profoundly important that, you know, their position might uh, upset me in some way, mm-hmm. we got to give room for good faith discussion. But if yeah. somebody's just trolling, <laughs> if somebody's just being a jerk, <laughs> you know, I don't have to use whatever sort of voice or, or market power that I have to yeah. carve out a space for that. That's absolutely right. That other voice here is David French. Uh, he is senior editor of The Dispatch, American political commentator, uh, and the uh, blog. He writes at his blog post, The French Press. There's also a website called thedispatch.com. You were talking before the break just about Beth Moore and the cruelty uh, that is kind of going on around it, just our culture, a little bit of cruelty. Uh, you, people may not know this, you are a real lightning rod. You are somebody that's been kind of a focus of particularly the very kind of uh, far right pr- uh, pro Trump crowd. And and I'm sometimes I'll read the stuff written about you and just be like, man, I don't know how you take it. So so I'm wondering, how has that been for you? Do you enjoy the fight or is it really hard for you? It comes with the territory. What do you do with all that you've uh, kind of taken on? Well, I will tell you what is it is not enjoyable to be lied about. It is mm. not enjoyable to have your family attacked. It is not enjoyable to experience online harassment or real world harassment. Yes. None of that is enjoyable. Um, And it's, you know, so when I was writing about Beth more, I was writing from a position of knowing in, you know, in different ways and to different degrees, a bit of what she's gone through Hmm. and to know what it's like to, uh, you know, in, in particular, I think the thing, the thing that is, uh, I mean, obviously, the thing that's the worst is when somebody, uh, you know, threatens you or threatens your family or hmm. or takes concrete action in the real world to try to destroy you. Um, that's the worst. But the second worst is the lying. Yeah, is the lying and the mischaracterizations. And and one of the things that is about that is there are all kinds of people right now who are walking around uh, this country. Who believe things that are just flat out false about me, just flat out false. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at some point you just have to realize you can't correct it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in, and in fact, here's the kind of the crazy thing about it is that sometimes if you elevate, if you have a public voice and you try to correct a lie, one of the inadvertent things that you often do is end up spreading it more. Interesting. Um, yeah. And so, you know, especially if people are predisposed not to like you because of politics or religious disagreements, they will, even if I rebut the lie, they'll still believe the lie because it's sort of an ideological imperative to believe the lie. So, yeah, a lot of that is there's nothing enjoyable huh. about that. But what is enjoyable is engaging with people in good faith. Like what is enjoyable is having meaningful conversations, even disagreeing and even disagreeing, you know, with some real emotion and 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 you know a conviction about things that really matter, and talking them through in good faith—that's fantastic. I really like that. 
I've learned from it. I, you know, have changed as a result of those kinds of conversations, but I, I draw a pretty bright line difference between the, the hatred, the lies, and then the dialogue and the discussion. Oh, that's helpful. Uh, speaking of lying, I, I do want to get your uh, thoughts with, about conspiracy theories and especially yeah. conspiracy theories within the church. Uh, a lot of us, Christianity Today ran an article just today or yesterday about uh, literally pastors who are quitting because how, how many people in their congregations believe the lies of QAnon and other yeah. things. Uh, are you surprised? Well, let me ask it this way. What is the danger as people start to believe in conspiracy theories, particularly in the church? And what's the answer for pastors, for elders, just for churches in general right now? Yeah, I mean, look, the dangers, we've, we've seen the dangers with our own eyes. I mean, for yeah. example, one of the dangers of believing in conspiracy theories is that some segment of Americans will storm the Capitol building and beat police officers with American flags like that's. Mm. That's a danger of conspiracy theories. And I'm staring right now on my computer screen at another danger of conspiracy theories or or misinformation, maybe a better way to describe it. And that is I'm looking at the available vaccine COVID-19 appointments at the county, just one county south of me at one location. And this is for tomorrow. One of the it's they have 20 slots per half hour. Okay, Um, three of 20 slots filled. Two of 20 slots filled. Another one, two of 20 slots filled. That's a consequence of misinformation is you have a, uh, you know, this pandemic ending vaccine, life saving vaccine available. And yet people won't take it. Mm -hmm. They just won't take it. And people will die as a result of this. They, this will cost lives. And so, you know, we have we're in the middle of a situation where we have experienced the fruits of misinformation and conspiracy in very bitter ways. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about, for example, anti-masking, misinformation around masking that costs lives. And so, um, yeah, it's absolutely imperative that we deal with it. But what's also really important for people to understand is this is often not an intellectual exercise. It's often not a matter of just sending somebody the right fact check. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all, what it's more typically a matter of is dealing with um, this is these conspiracies involve a sense of community, a sense of belonging. Mm. It's part and parcel of being a part of a, of a, of uh, you know, a, a small group at a church. It's part and parcel of being a part of a political tribe. It's part and parcel of your friend uh, being a, a, in a friend group. And, these kinds of things provide people with not just a sense of purpose, with, but with a sense of fellowship. Yeah. And so it's so that's what makes it, these things entrenched so much. It's not that the right fact checks haven't gone viral enough. It's that this is where people are finding their fellowship and their purpose. Yeah, I, I think you're on to something there. So what's the answer for the church? If you were leading a church or your pastor just said to you, David, what, what do we do about this? What what are some concrete steps that you think pastors and churches can be taking right now to to fight exactly what you're talking about with these conspiracy theories? You know, I got a tr- awesome email from a, a a reader the other day. And this this uh, reader said, you know, here's what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm reconnecting with my mother. Um, not from the standpoint of connecting by fact checks and, and, uh, articles and media content, but just by being with her and spending time with her. Hmm. And I think that that's one of the things is that if you have a toxic community, 
you can't replace something with nothing. Mm. And so rather than sort of leading with the fact check, um, I feel like we have to lead with healthier building and sustaining healthier communities yeah. um, and, and lead with and, and lead by example, you know, engaging with people that, you know, who are, um, you know, who are given into the, these conspiracy theories, loved ones that, you know, who are given into these conspiracy theories, not from a standpoint of fact checking, but from a standpoint of fellowship and friendship. And then, being somebody who is trustworthy yourself, hmm. um, I think is absolutely critically important. Absolutely. Again, that other voice here is David French, uh, American political commentator, former attorney, U.S. Army veteran. Uh, he writes, he is the senior editor of The Dispatch, and you can also find him at thedispatch.com. And also he blogs at the French Press. Well, David is super generous with his time today. And here's what I wanted to ask you. A lot of times as pastors uh, or just as Christians, we'll hear people say, or sometimes we'll say ourselves from the pulpit, uh, that it's harder now to be a Christian than ever culturally. Like things are worse now than they've ever been. Uh, I just would love your your response to that. Do you believe that to be true? And and if not, uh, why why would that not be true? Yeah, I don't, I really don't think that's true. Now, when I say I don't think that's true, that doesn't mean that I don't think that there are threats, for example, to religious liberty. It doesn't mean that I don't think that there are cultural headwinds running against Christians, especially in many parts of the country. Mm -hmm. But to say that there are areas of concern, and there are areas of concern, is not the same thing as saying everything's worse now than it's ever been. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, if you wanted to rewind the clock... You can go back 25, 30 years, and by many objective measures, things were worse. And a lot of people forget this. For example, the divorce rate was a lot higher. Hmm. The abortion rate was a lot higher. Um, the, you know, in recent years, we've seen an upsurge, an uptick in the number of kids who live in intact mother, father, married families. Um, crime rates, my goodness, crime rates were so much worse. And, so, and then, from a legal standpoint, religious liberty was on the ropes. I mean, hmm. religious liberty had just suffered a terrible blow at the Supreme Court of the United States in a case called Employment Division v. Smith. So you had less re- a concrete religious liberty doctrine. You had much higher abortion rates. You had many fewer abortion laws restricting abortion. You had higher divorce rates. You had skyrocketing illegitimacy, you know, and um, out of wedlock births. That was 30 years ago, but a lot of people would say, well, everything's so much worse now. Yeah. No, by so many objective measures, it's better. In fact, if you look at religious liberty, there's a 10-year-long winning streak in the Supreme Court of the United States for religious freedom, 15 cases. 15 mm-hmm. cases decided, most of them by more than 5-4, uh, that have consolidated and expanded religious liberty in the United States of America. But what has changed? People have accurately since to changed. A change. And one of the things that has changed is, is true that sort of this white Protestant Christian establishment is weaker. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying there's less liberty. So there's mm. the a lot of the sort of the white Protestant church has lost power, but it's gained liberty. So here's here's what I mean. The difference between power and liberty is power feels like liberty when you're powerful because powerful people do what they want. Right. But yeah. liberty is something you exercise against power. That's something you're able to do even if you're out of power. So free speech 
if I'm out of power and I have the liberty of free speech, I can still speak to power. Um, so if you roll back the clock about 100 years or so, the white Protestant establishment was near the apex of its power. It could even pass prohibition, for example, which was a definite Christian move in the United States. Mm-hmm. But religious liberty in the U.S. was in a very unhealthy place because at that same time, there are these anti-Catholic Blaine amendments that were just covering up American states. And so that's a difference between power and liberty. White Protestants had power. American Catholics had no liberty. So what's happening now is we have not as much power, but we have more liberty. And when you lose power, that's hard. And a lot of people don't like that trade-off. They don't like the trade-off of saying, I'd rather have the power than the liberty. Mm -hmm. That's that's good. That's I'm glad I asked you that question because it's something I as a pastor just wrestle with because I'll say it sometimes like right stuff's just so hard right now. But I think that is a really good perspective. While we have you on, I want to make sure to talk about vaccines. Uh, you sure. wrote another great blog post that basically linked for Christians taking the vaccine uh, with the biblical call, the, the call from Jesus to love our neighbor. Can you flesh that out? And what do you do with people who are just fundamentally against the vaccine? Yeah, you know, so there's a couple of one of the things that you you want to know is not just what are the reasons why a person says they're against the vaccine, because people will have, you know, a factual assertion, a factual assertion, B, factual Mm -hmm. assertion, C. It goes back to our discussion in the previous segment. A lot of this is part of a a partisan marker. Uh, It's part of it is even part of a religious marker. For example, white evangelicals are the community most likely to reject the vaccine of all American religious subgroups. Um, Mm. Republicans, white Republicans are more likely to reject the vaccine than any other political subgroup. So part of what's going on here is this has become partisan. It's become tribal. It's become part of a community affiliation. And so anytime that's what's going on, just like we said last time, just sending fact checks isn't enough. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what you're wanting to do is you're wanting to appeal not just to sort of the the head, but also to the heart. And that's where I think it's very important for, um, you know, for us to start to speak in sort of theolo- basic sort of Christian values terms as opposed to side effects terms that says, you know, uh, uh, talking about love of neighbor, talking about w- how does this, how do we fit in into our community? Are we a toxic presence in our community or are we a loving presence in our community? Because one of the really critical things about this vaccine is that it's very critical that we get to herd immunity as quickly as we can, in part because this vac- this virus is mutating. Mm. And the longer we go without herd immunity, the more opportunity there is for this sort of mutation process to begin to take its toll. Uh, saying, thankfully, so far, the vaccines have been very effective against yeah. these mutations. but. I think it's very important as for we as Christians to not look at us, our, ourselves as sort of I, we're not an island. We're part of a community and mm-hmm. we need to be thinking about um, our role in that community in ending this pandemic that has taken more than half a million lives in a year. And so that's more of a that's not so much of a here are the facts of the Moderna vaccine or here are the facts of the Pfizer vaccine. It's more like here is your role as a follower of Jesus Christ in this place, in this time, in helping end a deadly scourge. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, David, with the last couple minutes that we have here, uh, as you know, uh, our our show here is very focused on the church and evangelicalism. And I was going to ask you, are you hopeful for the church? But I guess I'd ask it this way. What are one or two things you'd like to see change in the trajectory of evangelicalism right now that would get us back to the part where we're lights in the darkness, where we are <laughs> uh, salt, where we are making a difference in the world? What are a couple of things that maybe you're hopeful for that will change uh, in the church uh, in America? Yeah. Well, you know, first, we got to acknowledge that there's just so many Christians on all sides of the political aisle who are salt and light in just mm-hmm. indispensable ways. And we have to acknowledge that and, and be grateful for that. But I also think it's absolutely critical to disentangle the church from partisanship. Mm. I think that's just an abs. And that's not to say disentangle from politics. I mean, politics is a part of life and yeah. it, it is a part of living in a community. And and so I don't think that Christians should withdraw from politics, but there's a difference between politics and partisanship. Because what ends up happening when you see yourself through a completely partisan lens is you begin to identify with individuals and with institutions, often for unbiblical reasons, mm-hmm. um, because you're, you're, you're yoked t- together. Um, you're yoked together in this partisan enterprise. And you know, one of the things that I really worried about in the sort of in the last five years was how much was the angry disposition of the GOP influencing the church mm-hmm. versus the fruits of the spirit in the church influencing the angry disposition of the GOP? Yeah. And um, given the incredible um, unity between white evangelicals and the and the Republican Party. In my experience, it'd be interesting to see if listeners disagreed with this. In my experience, I've seen the angry resentments of the GOP da, um, influence the church more than I've seen the fruits of the spirit influence the GOP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a, a kind. I think there's sort of three tasks, big tasks right now, um, to sort of start to repair our culture. One is disentangling the church from partisanship, so that it is it is seen. By the, you know, it's by fair minded observers in the world as having primary allegiance to Jesus rather than team red or team blue. So disentangle the church from partisanship, defeat toxic reactionary populism on the right and defeat toxic illiberalism on the left. And those those three um, tasks are related and interlinked. Uh, And so I think those are that's a that's a major both religious and secular uh, quest for us to sort of repair uh, and reach a healthier body politic. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's a challenge and it's it's a great challenge Huge. you've put before us for sure. For and all sure. the cultural the cultural winds are against us on that, that's right. on that point. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, David, before we let you go, this has been our pleasure. Uh, could you give us website, social media, all sorts of different places where people can find you? Yeah, um, I'm very easy to find on Twitter. Um, at David A. French is I'm on Twitter and you can follow me on uh, go to the dispatch.com and my newsletter is there. The French press, my podcast is there advisory opinions um, and a lots of great content from my colleagues at the dispatch. It's just a fantastic place for sober minded news and analysis that avoids hot takes and Absolutely. falls and tr- tries to defy the uh, panic driven um hyper 
angsty news cycle. <laughs> yeah. And as ones who appreciate it, we read it on this show all the time. And so fantastic. We are we are grateful for it. Again, David French, uh, senior editor of The Dispatch. David, this has just been a great joy. Thanks for being so generous and joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. <laughs> 